This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Helper. And I'm the other, Matt Taibbi. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, you know, a lot of people have questions about mm. what happened uh, yeah. and why why we're no longer a Rolling Stone. We consciously uncoupled from Rolling Stone. Is that really true, though? I mean, no, I think it's we've, not. We've, been, we've been telling people that it was an amicable break. Amicable, yeah. Break, but the, the truth is that it was political. It was um, political. Yeah. Uh, should, I just come wanna, for, should I just come clean? I think you should just admit it. All right. So, uh, you know, you cost us both our jobs. So. I did. Um, I cost us both of our jobs. I created this great opportunity, though, for us to come to Substack. And, you know, a lot of people were calling me an Assadist and calling Matt by extension an Assadist. And I was trying to, I was pretending that, you know, our severing with Rolling Stone or their severing ties with us wasn't related to Syria, but it absolutely was. Okay. Oh, my God. It's such a relief to say that. So we had political differences, and I wanted to. Cr- open up a studio in um, Damascus. I wanted Useful right. Idiots, useful idiots Damascus. Damascus. Yeah, I wanted a DT, uh, Damascus Today. They wouldn't even talk about putting into the contracts. And they wouldn't air that glowing profile uh, slash interview that you had done with, uh, with Bashar Assad. Al-Assad. Bashar Al-Assad, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we basically, all right, I wanted Assad to be the third host. Right, I, I thought the chemistry wasn't quite there. It's off screen, there are a lot of fireworks. But you're right. It just doesn't translate on screen. Like right. when he and I are hanging out, there's a lot of chemistry and like everyone notices it, right. but it just doesn't work on screen. So, I mean, for Matt, for you, it was a creative difference with Rolling Stone. I think that maybe they wouldn't have got, gone on board, even if the online chemistry had been more apparent. Yeah. You know, I I, I thought, you know, that it was just going to be a simple editorial decision for them. Yes. No, right. probably no. Yeah. And then I was like, what do you mean? Can you explain? And they're like, if you need us to explain, then that's a problem in itself. Right. So, yeah. Look, I thought you could have it all as a woman, but I guess not. And if you ask for things and you make demands. As a Jewish woman. As a Jewess, as a Jewish woman, it is. Apparently you get shut down and you get your job taken away from you. Right. But. Right. That yeah, well, it turns out that you know that that, that we're going to do it without Assad anyway. That's yeah, a whole other story that we just don't. That's a scheduling issue. It's a logistics. It's a COVID. It's a it's a scheduling thing. He is a really bad personal assistant. We'll leave it at that. Right. Um, yeah. But look, who knows what's what's going to come next? And we're in talks with other people. Yeah. So um, we're, that's if, using his Russia context. To, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the secret funding of the show is yeah. going to continue. Um, yeah. We're still going to do useful idiots. Uh, we're going to do more content uh, yes. than we did before. And today is going to be uh, a really interesting show. We have uh, somebody who was a childhood hero of mine, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, the, who, the famous whistleblower who brought forth the uh, Pentagon Papers. Uh, and we got some some new stuff we want to get to. And we got so much to get to, but I think we should just jump right into yeah, it. Yeah, let's so, jump in. Yeah. All right. Suck, Democrats suck. Uh, isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? Let's start with, with Democrats suck, okay? Kirsten Cinema, who's senator from Arizona. She's a Democrat. And she and uh, Manchin were the only Democrats who were holding up the minimum wage, not, not willing to vote for it. And of course, the beautiful part of this, by the way, Matt, is she's an out bisexual person, which is great. And she likes to pretend she's a feminist. And of course, two thirds of minimum wage earners are women. 
Okay, so here, here, this is really moving, okay? This is cinema from 2014. She was, like, in the Green Party. She was, like, black block, really radical. In 2014, she tweets, a full-time minimum wage earner makes less than 16 k a year. This one's a no-brainer. Tell Congress to raise the wage. Next, we have, really beautifully, this is this year on March 8th. She beautifully tweets, happy International Women's Day, Arizona. Today and every day, I'm grateful for the extraordinary women who paved the way for me and so many others in law and in life, which is also very moving. moving. And then if we go mm-hmm. to the next thing. And now here she is doing a thumbs down. It's not just a thumbs down. She like throws her, puts her whole body into it. Yeah. It's kinda, yeah. A lot of people miss this, but she pats McConnell, Mitch McConnell on the back. Really? Nice. I think there's um, a relationship going on there. Yeah. If you just go back a few seconds after she pats him on the back, it's really awkward. He really kind of disses her, and she does this thing where she turns around and it's like, huh, just, okay, yeah, call me. It's really awkward. It has a lot of Christopher Guest energy. Mm-hmm. So she does her little turnaround, and then she goes to vote, and it's, it's just... <laughs> I- <laughs> It's so unbelievable. Petty. It's so, it's like, it's so teeny bopperish. It's so, um, yeah, what is she, it's like, she doesn't like it's a dance, like, boo. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little like, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like something you're coached to do, like a, I don't know, maybe it's, she's signaling for a fair catch or something in football. I, I mean, I yeah. can't figure it out. It's like, it's just got her whole body leaned into it, but that's, yeah, she's know, leaning I, in, of, lean I'm, in I'm, feminism. I'm, yeah. I mean, I think that should become a thing in Congress. Like people should be, should be doing, you know, uh, you know, front handstands and uh, yeah, right. you know, backflips to get down there and vote. You know, like uh, sort of a triple. But it's axle like what's weird. Thing. Yes, but what's weird and what I like, and I agree with you here. I think that they should do this. It's like they, it's like a very pos- the, the body imagery, the body language totally contradicts what they're doing. It's like it boo, but they look like they're being really enthusiastic. But I think that every time anyone votes to like to cut some programs, they should do like you were saying, like a handstand. They should do right. a thumbs down and then do like, a, I don't know, a cartwheel, um, jazz hands, some kind of choreography. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe they should have like a, a parallel bars up there so people could do something really elaborate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or, yeah. Or like, yeah. Jim yeah. Manchin needs to do that. Right. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. I think that would be that would be really fun. What do you fun. think he would do? What do you think? What kind of gymnastics do you think Manchin could best do? I mean, I think he could do, you know, a bunch, a bunch of backflips, you know, and <laughs> a big guy. He could dis- knock dismount. into someone, though. Yeah, yeah, that could end. That could end badly. He could yeah. la- uh, land on the corner of the speaker's uh, <laughs> uh, desk there. And uh, yeah, it could be, be like a David Lynch movie scene. Yeah. Um, no, but, the, but the, the the amazing thing is, um, you know, I don't know how you feel about this. It's there were a lot of people online who were talking about this, how. Isn't it sort of always convenient how, um, you know, whenever the Democrats are about to do something uh, significant, they're always kind of slightly held back by some member of the caucus or some sort of small part of the caucus that just decides to to bolt and not not vote for it. Or it's the parliamentarian or whatever yeah. it is. Um, although, you know. Obviously, there, there's a lot in this bill that's that's uh, that's pretty interesting, and that is, was surprising to me that they they went as far as they did. So um, this sucked, though. I mean, this, this sucked, this, and this, Biden could have like done. I mean, all this stuff. Biden's either inept or he doesn't really want it. They did kind of give the game away when they were like before the parliamentarian even said anything. They're like, we just don't think the fifteen dollar minimum wage thing would would pass the parliamentarian. 
Right. Yes, exactly. How not would like they know? To her, yeah. yeah. How would they yeah. know? It has not, that. Not, is like, that... <laughs> not like she's, she's uh, chained in the basement of somebody's yeah, right. uh, uh, townhouse in Georgetown. Right. Uh, or in a, in a, uh, you know, with electrodes uh, right. in, a, in a car battery. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not like that. It's not like that. Yeah. And then they were saying it was sexist if you talked about it. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. Her comms person. Yeah. Her comms person. Was Wait, like, so you, you you just induced me to talk about this, and now I just I just perform sexist, the sexism. Yes. But don't worry, you can just hide behind me. Okay. All yeah. Right. Her her. It was like I said. I stand by what I said. So this is her comms woman. This is a woman who's saying it's sexist to talk about. And can we zoom in on that? <laughs> so for people who are just wa- listening and not watching, how would you describe this? She's it's a, uh, a very happy woman in a motorboat. That's a blue sweater that she's wearing, right? Is that yeah. blue? Let's see. Blue, it's white, a maybe? it's a white it's a baby blue or white sweater. Then she has a nice scarf going on, and there's beautiful water. And then there's like I think her dog's butt is in the shot. I get why she's you saying you can't talk the... about because she's saying you can't talk about their body language or the way that they dress. So obviously, I think oh, she I needs to recuse her. She needed to recuse herself though because if your profile picture on Twitter is you on a motorboat looking like a to- like a happy wasp with glasses. You can't make that judgment. It's too. Right. There's a conflict of interest. The, the name of that boat is the SS. It's sexist if you if you criticize Kristen Cinema's thumbs down gesture. There's been there you know there's been a number of um, initiatives around the country that are now kind of aimed at restricting uh, voting access. That's um, voting voting restrictions bill passes Georgia House over strong opposition. This is the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Uh, the lead reads, a bill to restrict ballot drop uh, boxes require more ID for absentee voting and limit weekend uh, or early voting days passed the Georgia House on Monday amid protests that the proposals would make it harder for voters to participate in democracy. Um, you know, a lot of times when, when people uh, complain about these kinds of bills, like, I don't know, sometimes in, in, in some cases it's a little bit overblown, but but uh in this case, you know, this whole thing about limiting uh, weekend early voting days, um, you know, that's there's a whole tradition in the South of, of especially black voters going uh, from church. It's the, I think they call it souls to the polls. Um, right. And so what they want to do is they want to eliminate that. And it's the, so the bill, in addition to like basically making it harder to vote in 19 different ways, um, is, is directly aimed. You know, at at black voters. So this is this is like old school, genuinely old school villainy. The parties are now so openly uh, pissed at each other uh, over the voting issue, and especially especially the Republicans, obviously. Um, but there's going to be this all out war, I, I think, uh, to just try to expand. The, the parameters of victory over who gets to have the most access for their voters, right? So there's there's going to be calls for statehood for Washington D.C. right on the Democratic side, and then there, I think what's going to happen is that the Republicans are just going to do a whole slew of these kinds of uh, laws all over the country. So, I, you know, it, there's going to be a generation of this. We should just get prepared for this. Is going to be a, a never-ending front. Um, you know, in, in it's almost like a second kind of electoral process. Right? A second coming. Yeah, exactly. So, what in, in between actually voting for candidates, 
the whole question of like who's going to be um, who's going to have arranged the voting procedures in their favor in between those votes is now going to become more and more crucial. I think there's going to be a lot of this at the state level. I think for the next you know for the foreseeable future because this because uh, because this issue animates uh, Republican voters so much. And I think this is one of the one area where you're going to be able to see the ongoing influence of Donald Trump because, um, you know, this is going to there's going to be pressure on state level Republican politicians to do this kind of thing. Like this is how they're going to fight back. I think. Yeah. So. And at uh, least shout out to remember that during the Supreme Court argument that some Republican lawyer was like, well, we want to do this because we want to win. You know, these are all tricks that we saw going back to, right. you know, the, the, the Jim Crow. Jim Crow, days. yeah. Yeah. Hey, they are traditional Republicans. They like tradition. But it does suck, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So bovine besties, cow cuddling becomes popular pastime for those craving a companion after a year of pandemic isolation sees people longing for a warm hug. People head to farms and at the cost of $75 an hour, and spend several hours with cows. Participants hug and lean on them with the act of cuddling known to reduce stress by releasing oxytocin. Cow cuddling is said to be incredibly soothing because the cows are big and have a slower heartbeat. What? There are cuddle farms in New York, Arizona, <laughs> and Hawaii with many booked in months in advance. Okay, what does the slower heartbeat have to do with it, by the way? Uh, um, I mean, I think if you're cuddling at a... a, a a big smelly animal that has a slow heartbeat, it probably chills you out a little bit. Right. I, I get it. Yeah. All right. So here we have a guy um, with a cow. Uh, okay. This <laughs> Now you have a family of, what is this? One, two, three, four, four people. Very happy. Two cows, two cows, four people. It's a good ratio. <laughs> so this one, how would you describe this? Uh, it's a, it's a guy with his arms around a, a cow and the cow's got a very emotive face it could be a, a bunch of emotions there it could be anger it could be, it could be happiness i'm yeah. not sure what's going yeah. on with that cow and the guy is kind of laying on top of other cows i don't know if they he has to pay multiple like do you have to pay per cow or just per hour like why buy the cow when you can have the cow's friends for free it looks like one of the cows has kind of got a nose going on like in the guy's butt area oh yeah you're right uh -oh. which might be part of that the, the pleasurable charm. expression on his face. I'm not sure what's going on there. Just the, he does look, look kind of in love with one of the cows. Yeah. 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 Okay. This is almost dangerous. It looks like a cow fell asleep on a teenager and it looks like you could kill him any moment. It, yeah. It looks like the te the, the kid passed out drunk. Yeah, on it a looks cow. like they both, <laughs> looks like they're both drunk, passed out on each other. They're going to wake up in the morning and be like, this is awkward. Uh, what happened last night? <laughs> Uh, nothing. 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 Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah I'll call uh, you. Yeah. yeah talk, talk later. Um, yeah. His face is red too. They did a lot of drinking. I mean, the human's face. That is a cute. I don't know what that is. That looks like never ending. Like a buffalo. Yeah. It's a bit, let's see. That looks like she's wrestling. Some of these look like they're wrestling with the cow. Like, I don't know if there's a lot of consent in this one. Yeah. I don't I mean, there's no consent in any of it, is there? No. Right. You're right. Yeah. I guess the cows are nuzzling, not hugging. Yeah. They are nuzzling. I guess yeah. they don't look like they're in like they're suffering. I mean, it could be worse from a cow's perspective. Yeah, they're a lot. They're alive. Participants often become emotional during the activity, with some even vowing to become vegetarian. I could see that. Oh, this is good PR for them. Oh, this is a good one. There's a drooling cow. That's really cute. That looks like 
It looks like a human. Kind of looks like a human. He looks like he's annoyed. He's like, it looks this like again. Chris Christopherson. Oh, yeah, it does look like Chris Christopherson. <laughs> Even the drool. Even the drool, yeah. That really does look like they're dating. Like, it right. has a lot of selfie, like, Instagram energy. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, like, I'm little, just saying. It's, it looks, a tad, it's yeah. a tad creepy. Yeah, it's tad creepy, yeah. It's also very unflattering. I don't of the. Is that a selfie stick thing? or I don't know, maybe, yeah. Yeah, the nose is a bit prominent there. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. It, it, it's, a booger, is that a booger? That's rude. We got to post flattering photos. Yeah. At least I could do it. Anyway, so, I mean, I'm lucky I have Bodhi, but you know what? I get it. I get it. I'm a, I didn't get it before because I was like, well, why not just, like, cuddle with your puppy? But that you can't do that. You can't lie on a puppy. That's not safe. The puppy, right. obviously. Um, that would be great to have a big, big dog. Uh, I mean, yeah, a, a big cat. dog. Yeah. Dog. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Like if this is still going on 10 years from now and there's no COVID and, and yeah. there's like massive hugging parties with cows, uh, I guess that's all right. I guess we can't knock it until we've tried it. Yeah, we ha- we can't knock it. I mean, as long as there's, there's not, it doesn't go too far. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm all for it. Are you yeah. for it? Yeah. yeah, I'm for it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's, it's still weird though. It's still weird. Yeah. All right. So this is a story about, uh, it's, it's actually, I, I picked it up because it's two Russian uh, crime news story cliches packed into one. Basically there's, there's two kinds of news stories you see constantly in these uh, Russian, uh, Russians are really big into like, um, sort of crime news uh they they uh there there used to be a number of different uh, uh newspapers there that were just sort of gruesome crime stories and people read them and we we had a section in our newspaper over there that was devoted to this uh and the two uh constant uh forms of news stories were horrible serial killers who did unthinkable things that was like one genre that was pretty prominent there like the russians in the united and in the americans are the world leaders in producing serial killers oh wow Pro- probably because we're the most militarized country right. um you know i talked i talked to a, a famous psychiatrist over there this guy alexander buchanowski if you ever seen the movie citizen x uh he's the guy who, the character that inspired the Max von Sydow character. Uh, that was his theory: is that we, because we had so many, uh, so much violence that are built into our society, that we, that's why we both produce uh, yeah. right. um, serial killers. So there's, there's, we have lots of uh, serial killers in, in Russian. That's maniac, right? It's these right. horrible stories. And then the other one, which maybe is it's also because we we're both very industrious peoples. Could be that too, right? A lot right? of like grit. We got a lot, lot of grit. A lot of grit, like picking ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of yeah. a thing, right? Yeah. Like that sort of self, self-reliance mm-hmm. uh, history. Um, the other one is one that, that Russian uh, detectives joke about all the time, which is that um, it, it doesn't take a lot of uh, detective skills to be a, a, a detective in a lot of Russian crime cases because <laughs> half of the murders are when you show up um, in somebody's house and it's a bunch of dudes who are passed out drunk in the kitchen and one has stabbed the other uh, or chopped up the other. Uh, and so, anyway, so this is the, like the Reese's Pieces of Russian, Russian uh, or sorry, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. I was going to say of, pieces, pieces. Yes, right, 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 pieces, exactly. Yeah. 
uh, it's about Eduard Selesnyov, who is the... Um, uh, you can I read the, the... I think you kind of have to read the head, headline. Yeah, the headline is Mo Monster Cage, Cannibal Killer, Chopped Up Three Pals When They Were Passed Out Drunk and Ate Their Body Parts. Uh, so this guy's from Arhangels, which is way the, way the hell up north of St. Petersburg. Um, a cannibal killer who murdered his three friends, boiled their corpses and ate their body parts has been jailed for life. Uh, Eduard Selesnyo, 51. Oh, just like me. Oh my uh, God, no wonder you identify with this yeah, story. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what it was. Uh, from Arhangels, Russia was um, convicted of killing his friends after a court heard how he stabbed the men to death after they passed out from drinking too much booze. Definitely doesn't look like a serial I killer mean, at all. Yeah, I, I feel like we need to explain. This is like, how do you explain what he looks like? It's... Well, for, he's, he's got the quintessentially Russian beard. Right. Yeah, he he looks like Kevin Bacon. First of he all, does look like I'm Kevin not convinced Bacon. it's not Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> we can six, play the Kevin Bacon game. Six with degrees him. of seven. Yeah. Of Kevin Bacon with cannot without Edward Silasnyov. Right? It looks like he's a Kevin Bacon who's made to age, who's been aged, even though he's probably the same age as that, right? But like he's like crust. He's like a what color would you describe that as? Like a lemon. What his hair? No, no, his face. It's like an egg. It's like an egg. Yeah, it's like it has the 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 quality. It looks like the outside of an egg, the egg white. It's a little yolky. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh! I see. Oh, you're saying it's, it's like no. An egg you're white. right. It's yolk. It is. It's like if you combine them. Yeah. And then yeah. the hair looks like it was chopped off with an axe or something. Well, that's that's very Russian too. Oh, Gogol used Russian, to say okay. with uh, you know Russian faces, it's you know one swipe of the axe, and then there's a nose, and then oh, that's I, funny, I, I didn't know I, that. I, I just gouged out with a great drill. That's that was uh, you know Russian faces are sort of rough hewn, um, but it also he's got the beard that has a beard. That's another great mm. northern look, right? Love it. Uh, anyway, it goes on. Uh, he admitted during the trial that he boiled his friends' bodies and used their cook remains as food. Uh, his victims, aged 59, 43, and 34, were sliced up to remove the body parts uh, he wanted to feast on before the rest of the remains were dumped uh, in a local river. Um, and again, not having, very sustainable, by the way. Not good practice. Yeah. And, you got to eat uh, the whole car. You had it, it's only justifiable if you eat the, the whole body. Right. Yeah. If you're going to take go, go to that length, you got to you got to at least respect the animal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know. I think a lot of Russian men, if there are any out there in the audience, would probably agree that they understand exactly what happened here. Because uh, when Russian dudes get drunk in the kitchen, there reaches a moment in every there's two things that always happen uh, in, in these scenes. One is that they run out of vodka and they have to go out and get more. Uh, and usually there's a misadventure between that moment and and when they get back. And the second thing is at some point, someone gets really, really hungry and they want to eat pelmieni, which is like sort of like a ravioli mm. type thing. So uh, I'm guessing what happened is they reached the pelmieni point and there just wasn't any. And so he he improvised. Yeah. That's what I'm, what I'm guessing happened. I here. mean, it's good he's good in the kitchen. That's right. kind of feminine. Yes. How many Russian men know how to put a meal together? They know they know how to cook something up when they're when they're drunk. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's 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 a skill that definitely all Russian men have. Yeah, uh, they they know how to do almost anything drunk. Actually, right. uh, they could probably fix a submarine. Yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway. The court heard that Silesio's bizarre eating habits also included cooking local cats and no, dogs as well it. as birds and other small animals found on the streets. Um, 
And uh, the serial killer sliced up the remains of his friends and selected the cuts of meat he wanted to eat. Uh, He's discerning. Yeah, that's right. He wanted to eat only the best of choices parts. Yeah, this is just sad. He he yeah. even moved into the apartment belonging to one of his victims and told the man's parents that their son had gone to work in another city. That's a little bit uh, American Psycho, remember? Yeah. No, and this is bit. where it gets ugly. Yeah. I was I was okay with the story so far. Yeah. Until uh, he did that. So you know, told the same story to police officers who started a missing person investigation. Yeah, this at this point it just becomes gross. He he is in another city. He's in. In St. Petersburg. That's right. Working in um, computer tech, IT. What's a, what's a very Russian job? Uh, I don't know. He's uh, working as a, ta- as a taxi driver. Work, ta- working taxi Uber. Taxi system. Yeah. He says hello. He'll call you. Don't call him. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, anyway, I don't know. We just like to talk about cannibals and, and yeah. either e- eating people or having sex with dead yeah. people on this yeah. uh, it's a podcast. family show it's a family show so yeah. this was eating people they didn't have it falls like, into that yeah we didn't have any necrophiles no i think it's a pretty good that's i mean there's a lot to it you got cooking you got I, I mean i don't know how i feel about the rats why i mean if he's discerning enough to cut certain parts out why would you go and eat a rat yeah i mean i guess in a pinch <laughs> right there's nothing else handy. you just add a pinch of salt pinch of pepper in a pinch yeah <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. What All is right. it? I mean, the bird I could see. I mean, I don't like that. It's gross, but I little quail, like I could see that, but cat cats doesn't do it for you? No. Right. I've never no. Do people uh no. Ugh. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, if you're if you're living in a neighborhood and cats are going missing and you got a guy with a beard like that in the neighborhood, I think that's kill that, him. That's where your detective skills come in. Right, just kill him. Uh, are we just telling people preemptively to? Yeah, preemptively. Yeah, don't. don't At least in, don't in camp, investigate. Yeah, just tie, handcuff him. Right, right. Just go straight to the end. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that was terrible. I think. Yeah. During the campaign, there were a lot of stone moments, um, and we had a segment doing that. And just because Biden's not running anymore, it doesn't mean there aren't stone moments. I just want to thank you both, and I want to thank the the, the uh, former general. I keep calling him general, but my my. Uh, the guy who runs that outfit over there. Uh, I want to make sure <laughs> the, the Pentagon, the secretary, for all he's done to try to implement what we've just talked about, and for recommending <laughs> these two women for promotion. Thank you all. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. This is another another clip. We have two urban farms actually in our building. We have Mary, who's in the garage there, and then we have Cultivate the City. Uh, with the and the point here is that his. They're going to freak out, his handlers. You can't, you're not going to be able to see it from, from here, but if they want to give a wave. I see him. Yeah. And then we also have Don't jump. We need you. Don't jump. We need you. What? Come on, Come on, Come on, Come on, Come on, Let's go, you guys. Come on. Come on, let's go. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. So, they freaked out. What? I guess. Can you play, uh, go to the, sorry, play that again. This is more, this is very strong. Um, Christopher Guest, um, the guy who died, what's his name? Um, Fred Willard. He, he makes a joke. I guess someone's like standing up above and he goes, don't jump. I see him. Yeah. 
And then we also have Don't solar. jump. We need you. <laughs> Don't jump. We need you. And then they start going. Anyway, it's so weird and overwhelming, and it really needs that that um, Curb Your Enthusiasm song music in the background when it zooms in on him. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we gotta do that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't um, jump. We need you. Is there? Well, is there actually a person up there or not? Oh, well, maybe that was it. <laughs> <laughs> there's no. There's nobody probably, up there. There was nobody up there. I think he did say it was a plant. Actually, was he talking? I think that's what. It, that's no wonder that they were like so freaked out. He was talking to a plant. I mean, it's better than Clint Eastwood. Don't, don't, don't jump. We need you. Cactus. Don't do it, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Freeze. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you're. At least you're stopping and you're, you're considering it. You're not. I'm glad you're not jumping. You're pausing. Yeah, that's really funny. I mean, so that's we're, we're, we're laughing, but the 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 Biden um, losing his faculties thing is going to become yeah, increasingly. It's kind of a thing. Scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's becoming a thing. Despite that, there's a piece in the Washington Post opinion. Comedians are struggling to parody Biden. Let's hope this doesn't last. So he's really worried that there's nothing to make fun of him over. But I love the idea that, according to this article, um, it's it's like a struggle to do that. To, to paradise Biden? Yeah. I mean, they really, they should just do... Like, like, just show him on screen. That's why it's hard because it's like you can't make it up. So, like when when Gerald Ford was president, uh, and Chevy right. Chase just fell down a lot because Gerald Ford was just ridiculous. Right. That's all you have to do is just have somebody be like, you know, ridiculous. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree. They were, but Biden so far has been impregnable. The voice is too bland and devoid of obvious quirks and beyond the occasional, come on, man. His conversational man, what, the, the verb choice? His voice is too, just the idea that there's nothing there. To oh, work yeah, with. I know. Yeah, his conversational men are too muted and self-effacing to give the parodists much to work with. Trump supporters and Fox News pundits would undoubtedly attribute this to the media's liberal bias. And to be sure, Trump was viewed by the mostly liberal satirists not just as an irresistible comic target, but also as a dire threat to the nation. Biden's, pleasant, Biden's pleasantly boring presidency okay, has been a welcome return to normality, but hardly great material for parody. Let's hope, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's the only terrible thing about his returning us to normal is that it doesn't give us as much comedic uh, potential. Uh, let's hope that changes. Can we really survive four years with a president who doesn't have a vivid enough profile to make the cold open of Saturday Night Live? Can't Joe Biden, in between planning for immigration reform and an infrastructure bill, offer a new conversational tick or catchphrase? Malarkey went out with the debate season. A verbal gaffe would be helpful, but Biden has set a modern record for getting this far into his presidency without holding a press briefing. Impressionists need something to latch onto. It's either that or four years of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Come on, man. Your legacy is at stake. I mean, it's they, amazing. The, we, the, the Washington Post can't tell the truth even about this. I know. I mean, I think that we should every week we should send them like comedic material. We should do a comedy packet based right. on Biden's behavior. Here's something you can work with. Yeah. M maybe there was nobody. Maybe Biden was talking to a cactus in that hardware. Yeah. So, or he right. definitely forgot the name of the Pentagon guy. 
Right. Uh, or or the Pentagon. He's running. He's running the, the whole outfit. show. That outfit over that there. That outfit. That's hilarious. <laughs> you mean the Defense Department? <laughs> Biden at this point is the Lloyd Bridges character in Hot Shots. You really, it, yeah. Admiral, good to see you again, sir. It's been too long. And so that, yes, yes. How are you, sir? Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii? <laughs> God damn it, Bill. I'm supposed to be in California. No, no, sir. This is California. Well, gotta run. Good luck, <laughs> and, sir. So that this brings us to the serious portion of the show. So excited to have on Daniel Ellsberg today. Yeah, Daniel Ellsberg, a major historical figure in a couple of ways. He was a, 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 a huge reason uh, for the. Um, I think for the change in American consciousness about the history of the Vietnam War, because he was the whistleblower who gave us the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers detailed four presidencies worth of lies about the Vietnam War. Uh, uh, Presidents dating back all the way through Eisenhower had presented a false front to the public um, about what was going on in Indochina. And Ellsberg, who had a long history of seeing um, through a lot of the big deceptions of the Vietnam era, including the Gulf of Tonkin incident and some other things, um, he, he basically brought all this out in public uh, and, um, and really changed the way the public thought about the entire uh, history of the war. Uh, but also people forget this. Uh, indirectly, he was the reason that we, the, the Nixon presidency ended. Right. Um, the, uh, Richard Nixon essentially formed his infamous plumbers unit. Uh, and the, one of the first things they did was break into Ellsberg's uh, psychiatrist's office. So he set kind of two really big, uh, important uh, historical events in motion. Uh, one intentionally, one unintentionally. Uh, and he was tried under the Espionage Act, much like... Much like Julian Assange, Assange. yes, uh, though though not though not uh, convicted, and he's written some amazing books. Uh, a book called Secrets that he wrote uh, in the early two thousands about um, his his uh, uh, history with the Pentagon Papers and in Vietnam, and then uh, more recently Doomsday Machine, uh, which is about uh, nuclear weapons and the sort of continuing threat uh, that people seem to. Uh, not pay as much attention as they should to. Uh, to. Yeah, and really recommend his website, ellsberg.net, because there are tons of really cool primary sources there. So definitely go there. We're going to talk to him about all these things, and it should be a great, great conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, thank you so much for coming on Useful Idiots. Uh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Um, well, uh, Obviously, it's a great honor for us to have you on. Uh, big fan of your books. Uh, I want to talk about uh, all of them, but I think we should start with Doomsday, uh, which is your latest. Uh, Doomsday about, Machine. Uh, Doomsday Machine, yes. Um, why have people stopped caring about the nuclear weapons issue to, with the same intensity that they once did? I mean, it's not like it's any less important than it ever was. In fact, you could argue that it's more important with the accumulation of accidents and near misses over the years. What is it in your experience that you think uh, uh, is the reason for, for people not caring as much? Well, I think it goes back really uh, 40, almost uh, well, 30 years to the end of the Cold War, people thought, okay, we're not in a life and death struggle with the communist menace anymore. Uh, there's no more problem. And so they thought the problem went away. The trouble is, 
the weapons did not go away. They're being renewed. In fact, I see even this week, uh, as we talk, there's a controversy, which will probably end the wrong way, uh, <laughs> on whether to build new ground-based ICBMs, what they call strategic missiles, and uh, uh, to replace our Minuteman missiles. Now, as you may have seen in the book, I regard those land-based missiles, which are very vulnerable, and if there's tactical warning that uh, an enemy attack is on the way, as there has been falsely a number of times in mm -hmm. the past, the president has a few minutes to decide whether to lose those missiles or to launch them, use them or launch them. And in other words, those missiles are the hair trigger on the doomsday machine. The world would be very much safer if we eliminated our own ICBMs and still safer still if the Russians got rid of theirs, but actually just getting rid of ours would make the world a lot safer. Instead of that, we're going to spend a quarter of a trillion dollars over the next many years maintaining these things, a hundred billion at the start, to replace these with new modernized ICBMs. We, sh we should be willing to spend that amount of money to get rid of them. There's such a danger. And yet, uh, and yet in instead, the likelihood is that they're going to produce those. Why? Because I just read this this morning. Northrop Grumman, which is producing those missiles, has spent $119 million in the last two years alone to lobby for those missiles. There is no other reason than the Northrop Grumman lobbying uh, to get those missiles. There's no military, no strategic reason, but that's enough. You know, it means jobs in districts all over the country. It means votes, uh, union uh, support for those jobs, above all campaign donations, uh, and probably direct bribes in various ways to politicians for it. That's enough uh, to get it. And that maintains a threat that's as dangerous as it has ever been. And that goes back 60 years. There's a, a really interesting part of the book where you talk about how um well, people say, oh, they've only used nuclear weapons twice. Yeah. And you say, no, that's not true. They've been used many times, uh, you know, in, in the fashion that you might sort of point a gun at somebody. Could you talk a little bit about about the, the point you were trying to make there? Well, that's the analogy that I've, I've used for many, many years. Mm -hmm. When you point a gun at somebody's head in a confrontation, you are using the gun. If you get your way without pulling the trigger, that's for most people the best, for most gun bearers, the best use of the gun. Some, some may like to pull the trigger, but that's after all more risky. You have the gun in order to use it in that way. And we have used our nuclear weapons, not only continuously, uh, for half a century to keep our place in West Berlin by threatening to blow up Eurasia and really the whole world in terms of human population. If Russians moved into West Berlin, and by the way, that worked. Uh, the Russians could easily have moved into West Berlin. Uh, and the only way we could have stopped them, we couldn't stop them with conventional force. They had 22 divisions in the vicinity of West Berlin. We couldn't get through that. But we could threaten to blow up the world. You know, that's, that's a, uh, blowing up the world is a little exaggeration. <laughs> uh, actually, with, with nuclear winter, you, you wouldn't, that doesn't lead to the extinction of the human species. Only about 90%, only is ridiculous, of course, 90 to 98%. Uh, that leaves 70 million, 170 million people left. That's quite a few. It's but, not, not a total yeah, loss then. But seven, yeah, right. but no, no, they'll be there to do it all over again. 
you know, right. over time. But, you have to see uh, the planet as half full, and, and for, not half empty. Actually, there was an article recently. There's a new book out about uh, the precipice. We're at the precipice. What puts us at the precipice? And the author uh, says the only things worth looking at are things that lead to possibly total extinction. And since nuclear war and even climate is not in that category, he kind of pushes that aside. Well, that's asinine. And uh, we're really talking about the ability we have paid for, deployed, produced, had at the ready all these years, really, for, uh, as I say, since a sizable number of weapons came about uh, by 1950. That's 70 years ago. Um, it's the ability to kill most people on Earth. No country should have such an ability. It, it should not exist in the hands of any, but it does exist in the hands of the U.S. and Russia. And if testing is con uh, continued, as the Republicans have pushed for for a long time, then a number of the other seven countries with nuclear weapons will get a doomsday capability too. Uh, in other words, it's, it's a kind of mass insanity, the capability for which we're seeing very vividly this year, are we not? <laughs> in the last year? In other words, uh, you know, a very large number of people believe that more votes were cast for Trump in the swing states than for Biden. 80% of the Republicans. So mass delusions are possible. How about the, there's no real pandemic, uh, the numbers are exaggerated, there's no climate change. Look at how many people, Republicans primarily, are able to uh, to believe these these delusions for a long time. Well, I'm saying that our nuclear posture has been based on such delusions for more than half a century, and still is. I, when I was reading the book, I was like, I, I realized like I didn't even know what a nuclear winter was. I had a vague sense of what it was, and I think um, there's. It's a generational thing. Could you explain that for oh, other listeners? Thank you. That's, you're, you're right. Of course, of course, you're right. Uh, that, that needs explaining. You know, in my generation, when I got into this uh, back in 1958, 59, 60, no one understood that there was such a possibility. That wasn't true. Uh, they didn't learn it until about 1983 under Reagan, when scientists like Carl Sagan and a bunch of others, uh, Russians, Thinchikov, uh, Toon, Brian Toon, others realized that cities burning from a nuclear strike causing a firestorm. It's, a, by the way, a peculiar kind of fire uh, that we only achieved deliberately Dresden. three mm -hmm. times. Three times. You know the other times? You're right. Dresden, mm -hmm. uh, Tokyo, and um, Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. And Hiroshima proves that with a nuclear weapon, you can get it every time. And the point of a firestorm is it has to be widespread, simultaneous fires, hard to achieve without, uh, with just incendiary weapons happened in Dresden and Tokyo. But widespread, simultaneous fires creates an updraft, a very strong updraft that brings winds in. It creates its own weather. It brings winds, a low volume, a low uh, pressure zone that brings winds in to the area creating very high heats on the ground. It's like a bellows in a furnace, uh, creating very high heats, which kills everyone in that area, either asphyxiates them from loss of oxygen or burns them to death. But something that wasn't even noticed with Tokyo and Hiroshima, it creates an updraft that carries smoke and soot into the stratosphere. It doesn't happen otherwise. It stays in the lower atmosphere and it dissipates and it gets rained out. But from these firestorms that nuclear weapons, we learned 
40 years ago, almost, the updraft into the stratosphere carries it into an area where it doesn't get rained out, and it gets moved by winds around the Earth in days, in a week or two, covering the Earth with a pall of smoke that cuts out about 70% of the sunlight. And that means that you get winter-like conditions, ice age conditions, on the Earth all the time, spring, summer, uh, night. Freezes rivers, freezes lakes, but above all, kills vegetation, kills all the harvests. So what it means is that in a nuclear war, let's say with Russia and China, or Russia and the U.S., possibly China, but Russia and the U.S. definitely, you would get an effect that condemns about 90%, maybe larger, of the population to starvation within about a year. The stocks of food last about 60 days in the, in the globe, and they're unequally distributed. We have a lot. We would stop sending it to anybody else, but ours would run out within a year as well, too. Everybody starves. It's not, by the way, uh, the death that people imagine from a nuclear explosion at ground zero. Very nice. You never know what happens. No. If only. This is a slow, slow death where you watch your children starve uh, first and the old people. And uh, like, radi like radiation, except that it's all around the world, the Southern Hemisphere as well. Okay, we discovered that in 1983. Uh, uh, Gorbachev who learned it even earlier from his Russian scientist, uh, Sinjakov, and Reagan took that, surprisingly Reagan, took yeah. that even very seriously, and they talked about eliminating nuclear weapons for an hour or two, a couple hours, till uh, people like Richard Pearl and others in the American delegation brought them down to earth. Uh, the only time that I know of that two heads of state have talked about elimination, which together they could do. In fact, uh, Biden and uh, Putin, even Trump, who was more friendly with Putin mm -hmm. and Biden, could have imaginably had such a discussion, to say the least, uh, whether their uh, military-industrial complexes, and there's one in Russia too now, capitalist country just like ours, they have their Northrop Grumman's, uh, if, if, if they would let them do it, if, if Putin could have overridden them in some way, you could imaginably get to that. That's what should happen, but uh, it's not in the course of happening. The, the, the uh, military-industrial complex in each country and in the other countries as well, the, the lesser countries, uh, it's too much profit and too much political power from the status quo. And the status quo is one of risking the imminent death of, see, it's hard to say, civilization, 70 million people left, have civilizations of a kind, not like ours, 170 more. All humans? No, no, you'd have some left. But imagine a world in which 7 billion people have died either immediately or within weeks from radiation or within a year. And what that leaves, uh, it, it gives us a look at, at human species that has tolerated this, that has built this, that has threatened this that is not very encouraging at all. Yeah, you say in, your, in, your, in, the, in the opening of your book, you say um, that you are trying to awaken audiences of Americans and others to the substance of what I then wanted to reveal precisely because I do not believe it is just history. Tragically, I believe that nothing has fundamentally changed. 
So is there any hope, especially given that the power of the military, military industrial complex, how can this actually be, how can we be veered off that course towards nuclear annihilation? It'll take a miracle. Fortunately, miracles do happen. In 1983, that same year uh, that I was talking about where they discovered that, how many people, what would people have said was the likelihood that, well, this is again before your time and before your generation. Not mine, but yeah. Well, what was the likelihood that the Berlin Wall would come down in 89? You know, even people who were, say, 10 at the time, like, or whatever, like that, my son, were pulled in front of the TV by their parents. Maybe you had that condition, Matt, and said, watch this something incredible is happening. And really the probability people would have given to that was not low, it was zero, it was impossible. It, that wasn't gonna happen, but it did happen. And uh, Nelson Mandela becoming, without a violent revolution, becoming the head of state in, uh, in South Africa, that was impossible. So in fact, uh, this is actually little more little known, but to me, the chance the nuclear war, the, I'm sorry, the Vietnam War, would end in 1975, while before Nixon's second term had ended. The, the war wasn't going to end with Nixon in office. He got a landslide in 72. The fact, from my perspective, not that of the public in general, but from what I knew, the chance then that the war was going to end before 77, before he was out of office, was zero. It was out of the question. How about the chance that Nixon, with his landslide, would be out of office in 74? Unthinkable, you know, just you couldn't imagine that it did happen, and the war did end nine months later after it got out. So, uh, with a lot of people in each of these cases working towards something that looked impossible, they all helped, and the impossible happened. I'm <laughs> that's not maybe giving you as much hope as some people would, uh, but that's that's where my hope is, and it's real. It's uh, I think it's extremely unlikely. Let's put it this way, in the climate case, how likely is it that Exxon will leave all of its oil reserves in the ground and not burn them? Uh, we're now going, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't, I don't see a way that that comes about. How do we challenge Exxon and Chevron and Aramco and British Petroleum to an extent that they write off those assets as they should uh, for a few years? You know, that they should be out of that business. Well, not very likely. And if it, if it isn't, as you know, climatic catastrophe lies ahead. And yet it is. Is it, is it not worth working in that direction? Uh, it is. And uh, we'll see what happens. It, it is, is part of the problem that the public is just not – and you wrote about this in your book, Secrets, how everybody has this idea – that uh, nothing stays secret in Washington forever, that you know everything always eventually ends up in the New York Times. But the reality is that a lot of, a huge number of nuclear accidents and near misses have been effectively kind of kept from the public and that there actually is an ability uh, of governments to keep secrets quite effectively. Um, are people just not as afraid as they should be because they don't know about a lot of the things that have happened? I mean, we've had so you know, fires involving warheads, and, uh, warheads that were crushed. We had a, you know, near, a two very serious near misses in, in the Soviet Union. Um, it, is that part of the problem, the secrecy? Well, 
Yes, definitely. You're right. They have kept those secrets. They, you can pry them out of them uh, bit by bit, often with Freedom of Information Act, which, by the way, should be expanded enormously instead of contracted the way it has been time after time. With all the shortcomings of the Clinton administration, which I saw, they had one good, uh, there was one good characteristic. They really did release a lot of information under Freedom of Information Act. They expanded it. We, we learned an enormous amount that we hadn't before. That was closed down by almost all of the succeeding uh, administrations. You could put more people to work declassifying documents. Look, just today in the New York Times, I noticed that the French are confronting the question of declassifying documents from 50 years ago. Uh, they, they're being withheld, looked at document by document, instead of just saying it's all, it's all. Actually, there was a law saying that anything 50 years uh, ago should be declassified, period, in bulk. Uh, should be a lot shorter than that, a lot shorter than that. But they haven't been doing it. They've been looking document by document and so forth. Now, that covers the Algerian War. So, and it covers torture in the Algerian War. So there are people, historians, who, who want to look at those records. The same thing by exactly applies here. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, after some, uh, some controversy arose over our use of torture in the... Uh, so-called war against terror. So Cy Hirsch reveals uh, Abu Ghraib, basically, the torture of Abu Ghraib, others. And there was uh, something of a discussion of it at that point. The Senate, then, uh, Intelligence Committee under Dianne Feinstein, uh, did a huge staff study that resulted in 6,000 pages looking at every single case of torture that they had and revealing, according to the small summary they released, revealing that no actionable intelligence had come out of that exclusively out of that torture program. You know, really giving substance to the statement you hear, but it is implausible. Torture doesn't work. It's not a good policy. It is, by the way, as illegal as anything in the world. It's what's called, uh, use, uh, use Kogan's peremptory international law. No legislature can make it legal. And our domestic legislature has criminalized it. The UN Charter, the Convention of Human Rights, everything, it's as legal as it can be. So we were doing it, and the uh, this page report remains classified. Feinstein couldn't get it out. She's head of the Intelligence Committee. Now, she could have, of course, just put it out in the Senate, but then you'd never get any information from CIA again. They wouldn't give it to you, just like Fulbright chose not to put out the Pentagon papers that I gave him. He could have done it perfectly legally, but then the Pentagon would say, oh, we can't trust you to keep secrets. And they would have given, they would have given um, control of foreign military aid to armed services, which is very pro-Pentagon, rather than the Foreign Relations Committee. So he didn't put it out, period, having said to me that he, he would earlier. Well, likewise, this torture report, People like Wyden or Udall who, who said, we should know this. Feinstein said, this absolutely, we've redacted it already. It can be put out, absolutely. CIA said, no, it's still not out. If I'd been in, uh, that is one of the things, definitely. I would have been willing to go to prison to get out. It's a historic document to try to put a nail. Uh, what is it, a, a stake in the heart of this? What is it? The, uh, 
Yeah, the vampire. 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 Yeah. It's not a vampire squid. It's a, uh, <laughs> Just sorry, a regular it's a, vampire. Uh, it's a, your regular vampire. And, uh, but it ha it's not there. It's still with it. They made that movie, The Report, about it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a report. It's sitting. The, by the way, the Pentagon after uh, that, under uh, George W. Bush, um, no, no, it was in his second term, I guess. They tried to get it back. So they could burn it, you know, get it out. But studies do exist. Yes, and it should be out. But as you say, uh, Matt, secrecy has worked very well on nuclear. For example, I'll just mention this, Katie. You rightly reminded me that people don't know what nuclear winter is. And I say it's the, it's the winter caused by the smoke that, uh, that rises and covers the earth and, and creates ice age conditions. Okay. Actually, I know very well that people, I've, I've asked audiences this time and again, don't really know the difference between an A-bomb and an H-bomb. The difference between a so-called atomic bomb, a uranium fission bomb of the kind we used on Hiroshima, and the kind that are almost universal today, H-bombs, hydrogen bombs, fusion bombs that fuse light isotopes of hydrogen. The, see, the important difference being that the hydrogen bomb, when it first was tested, was a thousand times more powerful than the A-bomb that uh, Hiroshima, which is either 13,000, that's a thousand times more powerful than the largest blockbuster of World War II, it was 15 to 20 tons. And they were called blockbusters because they destroyed a block of buildings. Okay. The Hiroshima bomb in one bomb is a thousand times more powerful than that, uh, 15, 20 kilotons. <clears throat> the Hiroshima is 15. The first test uh, of a uh, nuclear droppable hydrogen bomb, 1954, was a thousand times more powerful than that, a million times more than a blockbuster. Nearly all of our bombs, they're not that big normally, you don't need them that big. They have a lot of smaller ones. That does has a bigger destructive effect. And it doesn't all go up in the air. It destroys things around. Unfortunately, it throws a lot of smoke up in the atmosphere. Okay. Several countries, India, uh, Pakistan, have not tested an H-bomb yet. Uh, India is thought to have tested one that fizzled, that didn't work. New testing which the Republicans have been for, for we start testing, everybody starts testing, will give them H-bombs as well. What I'm saying is hardly anybody in our country would understand what difference that made. So they have A-bombs. They have bombs before, now they have bombs. It's the difference between uh, destroying cities and destroying a hemisphere, or uh, basically with nuclear winter. They become doomsday machines. So it makes a big difference, but hardly anybody knows that. But that's what's riding on that. So we're living in a in a world of it's it's like uh, believing that uh, there's no climate problem, and most people manage to believe that if their president tells them that, and their well, Republican congressman tells them that. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about because there, there's a, a striking scene again. It goes back to the, your other book, Secrets, where you're recounting the the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And uh, the whole story uh, is is so crazy. You're, 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 you very dramatically recount how you're uh, you're hearing all the reports coming from Captain Herrick 
in the Gulf of Tonkin. And then, you know, there are torpedoes in the water and it's all very dramatic. And all of a sudden there's a there's a another series of reports that basically says, oh, all all of those things that we said before, we're not so sure about now. Um, maybe we should investigate. And I, I went back and looked at the actual news reports the next day, and there were it was, you know, it's absolutely unequivocal that there were an, there was an attack. You know, the New York Times headline: "Reds driven off." It's just so striking how completely they lied about that episode. Um, and in the book, you say that you know you, you think probably not much has changed on that score. Um, how much should people be concerned about what their presidents tell them, and should they always be skeptical, uh, particularly when it comes to matters of war? Yes. <laughs> well, that's an easy question, I guess. It's somebody told me the other day, Dan. I've never heard you give a yes or no answer. Like, oh, there you did. Once in a while, just to just to throw a fastball here or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, of course. Uh, skeptical. I, I F Stone, a very good reporter, investigative reporter, used to say, "All government official lies, lie. All government officials lie." And nothing they say is to be believed. And that's true. It doesn't mean that everything they say is a lie and that there's no information value at all in, in what they're telling. So the information value is mainly this is what he wants if she or wants me to believe at this moment for some reason, a particular audience, me. What he says for another audience is what they want them to believe. But in the government, when you discuss these things, what should we say about this? If anybody said, well, the truth is, people would say, what's that person doing in this room? You don't, <laughs> you don't start from that. You can always do better than the truth. Uh, you know, you can hide certain things, keep people from noticing, keep people from asking questions. You can always do better than that. So essentially, everything they say is to some degree misleading. It's not always flatly true, but it's, you know, what the magician does, misdirection. Uh, look in this direction, you know, rather than other. And uh, yes, great. great <laughs> you can't overdo the criticism of that. And yet, of course, um, there are, there is, you, I, I said you can't overdo it. I guess QAnon does overdo it. Uh, you can see conspiracies even where they don't exist. That's for sure, if you're told about them, especially authoritatively. But the truth is, conspiracies do exist at the, high at the highest level. I was part of a massive conspiracy to get us into the Vietnam War. I knew what was happening. I knew the public was being lied to. I kept my mouth shut about it. I didn't have to say a lot of lies because I didn't speak to the public particularly. But everything the president and McNamara and the others were saying was false. And I went along with that, as did hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of other people. So uh, when I mentioned, I mentioned that to the other day, and they said, well, this person who's very hip said, well, I wouldn't call that a conspiracy. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, a conspiracy means people uh, deceiving, covering up. I said, yes, that's what we're <laughs> talking about here. And, uh, uh, you know, look at Iraq, you know, uh, 40 years later. So he said, he said, well, it doesn't seem right. I said, you find it hard to imagine a conspiracy led by the president. And I think people do. You know, they think it's somebody, bad guys under the president uh, or, you know, not in the government. But uh, really, 
Conspiring is what they do in in the uh, in the government. When it comes to managing an empire, while you're telling everybody that we are not an empire and we don't act like empires, and actually we are an empire and we do act like empires. And the big difference between us and other empires in the past is that we have a nuclear gun to point at people. Uh, we we are the we are the empire that invented the idea of getting our way by threatening to blow up most people on Earth. Keep in mind, before 1983, we didn't think in terms of blowing everybody up. The Southern Hemisphere would be fairly safe from fallout, for example. We didn't think about smoke at all. But Eurasia was going to go. If we went to war with Russia over Berlin, for example, which even Kennedy said, we won't do this unless we have to, but we won't shrink from it, you know, if we have to. Shrink from what? From nuclear war with Russia. In fact, the head of the Strategic Command, Admiral Charles Richard, said about a month ago, about a month ago, we have to be prepared for nuclear war with Russia and China. Now, China has 10% of the weapons we do, but still enough to cause nuclear winter. We have 10 times more. Nuclear war with Russia is that we have to be prepared to uh, to kill ninety uh, percent of the human population if we have to. Hmm. You know, uh, he doesn't. Has he thought about what he's saying? He knows what that that war is. It's just that we've gotten used to saying things like that uh, over the years, and uh, <laughs> it's it it is a, it, a bad insight into human human species that that occurs. There was another observation you made out that that kind of speaks to that. Um, you talked about how uh, after a while, when you lie to the public, correct me if I have this wrong, when the public is lied to so often, you start to have contempt for them because they believe it. And yeah. uh, there was a passage where you talk about how, well, because they're just mentally not up to it, they should just leave it to us. Uh, right. And that's the mentality that that starts to be developed within, you know, in this sort of secret world. Um, yeah. Is that kind of a, is that, it sounds like it's sort of a self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, you know, you lie to the public, they believe it, and then yeah. you have more contempt for them. So you lie more right. and you're justified. Uh, is that, is that, is that, yeah. Well, right. you know, yes, not a short answer, but uh, Matt, let me put, you remind me of your very good work in the past. It's not only the government that does this. In fact, who pretty much is the audience, is, is the, the people who determine our foreign policy or very much of our policy. We're talking about corporations here who are as secretive as the government without having a formal classification system. They don't have clearances that the FBI goes into. They don't stamp things top secret. They probably stamp them sensitive or eyes only or, you know, corporate use only. They sign non-disclosure agreements, which are exactly the same as the secrecy agreements we do in the end. So you made the point of uh, focusing on specific financial empires mm-hmm. like Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. you know, the, the vampire spin, squid. Okay, that is not done as it should be in discussion of foreign policy and of uh, big policies like climate. You can read, uh, you see back of me here, a library of books on on uh, nuclear dangers, nuclear arms control. 
if I picked out a book on that, or if I picked out a hundred books, I could look in the index and not see the word Boeing mm. or Lockheed or Raytheon or Martha Grumman or General Dynamics. Just not there. They are people, you know, who uh, they build things that we want, you know, when we ask them to do it. Uh, it's not, it has no relevance that they are picked to be sick death, uh, Secretary of Defense or Deputy or Assistant and whatever. Lockheed, Raytheon, our current managers from the board of Raytheon right after he got out of the Air Force. And of course, uh, out of the Army, I'm sorry. And um, of course, the prospect of going onto the board of Raytheon and General Dynamics is critical to port- importance when they talk about the weapons they need. Uh, Mattis, for example, James Mattis, said when he was had been head of the strategic command, head of the strategic command, uh, which is the successor to the strategic air, for, air command, uh, when he was out of it at Stanford for a while, he said, we don't need the third leg of the triad. We don't need ICBMs, uh, which uh, I was talking about earlier. And he'd been in charge of the ICBMs. He, no, no, don't need them. We shouldn't have them. Then when he's going for, uh, for a committee, to be confirmed, he says, well, it's a question of whether we need them. We ought to look into that. When he's actually Secretary of Defense shortly after, oh, absolutely, we need the triad. No question about that. We need the ICBMs. <laughs> They've served us well in the past. After all, we haven't had a nuclear war, right? So it's just like, uh, I think we can assume that Austin, uh, the General Austin from Raytheon, uh, who knows nothing about ICBMs? Let me just guess that he knows as much as as uh, your audience knows about nuclear winter. We haven't heard from him. If he doesn't come out for Northrop Grumman's ICBMs, I'll be amazed. Uh, I'll eat your hat, uh, <laughs> your, your TK hat. There. <laughs> and uh, uh, no, that's his job. So it is important. No, take climate. Uh, Bill McKibben, great expert uh, on climate, one of our best voices on the subject, just had a very good review of a book by Gil Bill Gates on climate. And he gives the book some in the New York uh, uh, Times book review section about a week ago. It's a very good review. Uh, people should look at it. He says, yeah, he's right about this and this, and he's got some good things there. But then he says, but he's ignoring various things, and he goes into criticism, and he brings out the point, rarely made, that people concerned about the climate should turn their attention to the vested interests that maintain the status quo of putting fossil fuel out of the ground and into the air and causing greenhouse gases. Okay, so he says, the fossil fuel industry you know, is of a major importance here. And I looked to see the name Exxon, but it wasn't there. Or, or uh, Gulf or, you know, Exxon Mobil, uh, British Petroleum and so forth. We have got to see the power behind the throne here at last. And in theory, Congress could bring them to check uh, a little harder to do when they're essentially paid uh, in office, you know, with their campaign contributions and the votes and the jobs that are involved uh, in the thrall of these companies. So is it impossible to change that? No, it's not impossible. It's very difficult, very hard, very unlikely. It's worth doing. And just as you... Now, let me ask you, Matt, how much... 
your expose of Goldman Sachs. Okay, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Goldman Sachs just transferred their offices into the White House uh, after you've written <laughs> that. If I'm not, am I wrong? Multiple uh, times, had, yeah. You had an administration filled with Goldman Sachs people, and that was true of, of Barack Obama. Am I not? Am mm-hmm. I not wrong? Yeah. As much as anybody else. In fact, I think Goldman Sachs was one of. Barack Obama's major contributors. It was his his number one private contributor. Okay, number one. So I suspect, for example, that what they saw in what he described himself as this thin black guy with a funny name, what they saw in him as early as before he ran for the Senate, when they were already backing him, was uh, somebody with their interactions with him who would not nationalize them when the, when the, uh, 2008 bubble burst, uh, they could see that coming. They could see that coming. Uh, surely, you know, as I think you exposed, Goldman Sachs was short selling, selling short uh, stocks. They were selling, you know, to their customers. Sure, yeah. mm-hmm. So they could see it coming. Okay. Uh, in their secrecy, did they, you know, did that leak out? No, not because uh, they had top secret, but because their careers depended on not leaking that out, people who knew it. Okay. So they needed a couple, several things from a new president when that bubble would burst. He wouldn't nationalize them. He wouldn't penalize them criminally. Uh, he would reimburse them. He would make them good as they, as they did, Goldman Sachs. And so, and Barack delivered on all that. Uh, and, uh, you know, what else uh, is needed? So, uh, these are the connections that investigative journalism and Congress, if they conducted hearings appropriately. Let me ask you, Matt, you know, and I don't know, were there adequate or even any kind of hearings on the 2008 financial? I'm sure there were hearings. There, in there were, yeah. And there was the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, um, which was was pretty detailed and, and um uh, came, you know, did did a lot of great work, and then there was the Dodd Frank bill where they talked a lot about the yeah. the 2008 uh, causes. But well, how you know, much has changed? Would you say as a result? I'm asking. <laughs> I'm asking I don't know. That's not, not my field. Not too terribly much, unfortunately, and uh, it's uh, sort of much the same story. And the 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 rescue of the COVID economy is very similar to the bailouts after 2008 as well. So yeah. the banks had a great year last year. Uh, they, had, they had one of their best underwriting years ever. So uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So as you, as you say in your book, nothing, nothing much changes. Yeah. Which coincidentally is um, Biden's, one of his most kept uh, campaign promises, although he didn't make it publicly, he said to a bunch of donors, nothing would it fundamentally change. That's right. I did hear that. Well, that's not, that's not wonderful. <laughs> well, that was great. Really interesting, that right? That was. That was extremely interesting. And if you liked that interview, you can hear the rest of it, because we barely scratched the surface, but you can hear the rest of it at usefulidiots.substack.com. And thanks so much for, for, for checking in. And thanks so much for listening to this new uh, Useful Idiots Unchained It was our first Useful Idiots 2.0. Useful Idiots with a Vengeance. Yeah, it is. It's the comeback tour. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. I know that's one of Matt's favorite quotes. It's on a lot of college posters. They tried to bury us. They didn't know we were on Substack. Right, right. We were sub-seeds. 
Yeah, they tried to bury us. We didn't, they didn't know we were subseeds. And of course, subscribe to usefulidiots.substack.com and you can hear the rest of our great interview with Ellsberg. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.